Hi, hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of the Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am alone in the studio, but joined by a very good friend, Giles Ellis of Schofield Watch. Hi, Giles. How are you doing, buddy? I'm very good, thanks, Rob. Good to have you here, mate, and thanks for being one of the very first guests on the Real Time Show. You know, I wanted to talk to you as early as I could because this show aims to become the most interactive and behind the curtain watchmaking podcast that the industry has ever seen. And you have always been one of the best people at pulling back that curtain and telling us exactly how you do what it is you do with your wonderful company. So for those of our listeners who haven't yet had the chance to dive into the Schofield universe, could you do me a favor and explain where it all began for you and why Schofield Watch Company came into being? All right, let's get right to it. Back in time, we're talking 2007, 2008. And I'd reached a time in my life where I just needed a nice wristwatch, like so many men do. It's allowed, right? You're you're allowed to spend 3,000 quid on an anachronistic piece of jewellery. And I was at that point. I wanted a watch, but alas, I couldn't afford it. In fact, I proposed to my wife to make a money box that was a slot that went between the fridge and the wall. And the pound coins would roll down the side and go into a pot behind the fridge where I couldn't get at it. She said that was ridiculous. If you're going to spend that much money on a watch, then we really should consider a family holiday. And so the money box was never made, but the desire for a nice watch was there. And I'd started my research. And the problem is, whenever I start research on anything, then the I only have two choices of endpoint. One is to buy the thing that I've ended up uh, falling in love with, or two is to try and walk away. But after I've invested so much money doing a Concord, as it were, then really buying it is often the only way out and ceases the research. Uh, it's It's a vicious trap I get myself into over and over again. Talking about vicious traps, though, this money box contraption, because you've told me this story once or twice in person on podcasts before, I've always allowed you to gloss over the mechanics of it, but it sounds fascinating. You were actually planning on building, well, like some kind of old fairground style, you know, roll your penny down it. Yeah, it was cardboard uh, and it just uh, had a high point of entry, a slot. Uh, The gap between the fridge and the wall was only about a centimetre. So it was perfect for this. And the fridge is heavy and inconvenient and you're not really going to go behind it. So I was going to dump any excess pound coins down this chute and it was going to go down the side, round the corner and just fall into a pot behind the fridge where we had some space. I mean, for anyone that's not spoken to Giles before, I heard him speak on one of the many podcasts he's done, uh, thankfully, over the years, because they've always been very informative and interesting. This is exactly the kind of thing you're going to be getting. So I think we're going to do at least one episode now. We'll definitely get Giles back soon to do another one because these stories know no end. Sorry for interrupting. Carry on. So we've got the money box out of the way, which I always want to know exactly what it looked like. I can picture it now. So carry on. So no money box, but desire still to own a watch. And from memory, I had definitely gone down the Panerai route. I had definitely considered Bell and Ross. Um, and then the lesser known uh, Italian brand, Anibi, really were where I was going from the point of view of clarity, build quality, uh, legibility of the dials, what I mean by clarity. Um, and a kind of, kind of cool watch. And the more research I did, I became very frustrated and I could quickly see why people would collect 
nice watches because one watch doesn't do it all. And being somebody who is confident enough to make their own thing, I decided very early on, actually, that I would just make my own. Uh, having learnt that many of these brands were using the same movements, that that of course was the sticking point right at the beginning. Is what movement I could use, and so I realised I could get hold of an ETA movement. I could get hold of some hands. I would do my own dial, of course, being a designer already. Um, and the casework, well, that was that was going to be tricky, but I could do it. I've done lots of engineering before and made lots of stuff. Uh, from light switches to mountain bike components to amplifiers. So very happy spending time on British industrial estates talking to people about making uh, the, odd, the odd piece here and there for me, for total vanity, nothing more. And the more I learned about watches, the more I realized that a laser engraved flat piece of aluminium or steel for a dial just wasn't going to cut it. This was no way in a watch, and there was no way I was I had moved away from the handmade look or the one-off engineer's prototype look. I, I couldn't I couldn't live with that. That was not anything that I was going to invest my time in. And then the more you learn, the more you realize that essentially you're gonna have minimum orders. And already at this point, I've invested many, many hours of research and studying the industry. And also studying what it was that gave watches a classic look. And it's something almost intangible. It's not something you can pin down to a set of rules. If you design a watch and a watch dial, specifically a handset, as a graphic designer, then quite often you're at the whims of fashion, as graphic design is. It's a very fashionable industry. There are trends within graphic design. And a watch design like that ends up looking like a fashion watch, like a diesel watch or um, maybe a fossil watch or something along those lines. And it wasn't classic enough. I'd fallen in love with vintage Patek Philippe's, right? And uh, loved the details on the older dials and tried to learn what it was that made the look of them classical that is when i say classical i mean you don't tire of them they don't go out of fashion they're good forever and i studied that for a very very long time um and for years my original watch the watch i launched with which we'll come to in a second the signalman the dial of that for years lived above my desk so i could see it every single day and see if there's anything that niggled me if anything needed amending or moving, or scaling. Um, and that would have indicated to me that the dial was not yet within the classical register, the register being the language of classical dials. I designed many, all different forms, uh, with without appliques, with or without step stepping in the dial, so making the dials more or less 3D, different finishes, different textures. Uh, different reflectivity, all of these elements with or without complications. So back then, obviously, I wanted complications. It was my first watch. And complications are are blingy. They're, they're attractive. And I wanted a power reserve. I thought that was particularly cool. I thought a GMT would be useful. 
um, and a date. And so the watch I designed had those three complications, date, power reserve, and GMT. And so the question for me now was to be able to find a movement that could uh, fulfill my design needs. Uh, that was the SOPOD movement. And that's an essential part of the story, the SOPOD movement. So going back to the dial, the dial really is the difference between a one-off watch that would have satisfied a one-off watch that would have satisfied my vanity or a production piece. Because with a dial, you have minimum orders. There is tooling that goes into making a dial. You can't just make a gorgeous classic watch dial as a one-off. It would be prohibitively expensive. And so it was at that point that I commercialized Schofield. I made it into a business to be able to simply offset the minimum orders that were in front of me. That's amazing that that is really where it came from, just out of the realities of manufacturing to get something to the quality and the tolerances that you desired for your own satisfaction. You had very little choice but to commercialize what is now uh, a much beloved and long running British brand. Let's just go back to the movement for a second here because you talk about Soprod and I remember when you were founding Schofield because I was a young aspiring watchmaker at the time and I was fascinated by your journey. And I was really thrilled that you were using Soprod in your watches because back then very few people had adopted it. And I think you were one of the first that I'd noticed using it openly instead of an ETA and instead of a Salita. What was it that attracted you to Soprod? Was it simply the fact that it had the complications you needed where you wanted them? Or was it something else about the brand itself? Yes, no. So the Soprod was chosen firstly because of the layout of the complications. So I designed the dial around the movement that was already in existence and chose the Soprod because I like the symmetry uh, and positioning of those complications on my dial. So an alternative way of doing it that many watchmakers do is you design the dial and then have the movement more or less fit your design. So that means custom working the movement to make sure that it fits your dial. Whereas what most people do will design the movement first and then dial design the dial around the movement. Now, in an ideal world, with all the money in the world, you would design the dial with the complications first and have a movement made to fit that design, more or less. I say more or less because you don't always get the flexibility to put uh, opinion for a hand exactly where you want it to go, for example. So the Soprod fitted my requirements as a designer. It had nice symmetry. We had a GMT, sub-GMT at six o'clock. We had a power reserve at 12 o'clock, a date at three. So it really worked for me as a designer. I had the continuation of clarity that I'd started with, and I'd had all the complications that I wanted. So that was the primary reason I chose Soprod. The second reason was that it was exotic, meaning it wasn't an ETA. It was an unrecognized Swiss maker, essentially. And back then, they'd started making essentially a clone of an ETA with modules on top. They were already, made, already, they were already making modules for ETA, but now they'd made a base movement and attached their own modules to it. 
The modules is the component that sits on top of the base movement that handles many of the complications. And so I was one of the first to use it. Uh, sadly, actually, this is not a good part of the story because um, they hadn't actually yet started manufacturing some of those parts uh, for the movement that I required. And so when I started, it was called Schofield Watch Company. This was a name that I'd taken from an amplifier, a power amplifier. I like hi-fi. A power amplifier I'd built the year before. I was into Westerns. It was a cool-looking Smith & Wesson revolver. It was the one, in fact, Jesse James used and a number of other outlaws because it was very quick to load because it had a hinge and uh, top-loaded. means with a speed clip, you could load the gun much quicker, so therefore favoured uh, by people like Jesse James. And the amplifier had two revolvers uh, on the front. And so when I did my own watch, I really liked the design and I carried that over to this, which was a single watch and then effectively a hundred watches um, with the soap rod movement. And I ordered, I think from memory, it was about 30 movements from soap rod to get going. I had commissioned a hundred dials. Uh, you make a few more hands, so it's probably about 200 hand sets. Um, and I'd already found a manufacturer in Germany, a watch shop, essentially, where you go and they can facilitate most things for you. And they were going to make the case. They took on my case. Now, my case is not an easy case to make, so that uh, carries its own complexity. Now, the issue I had was that everything was running nicely. We were starting to see prototypes of the case and dials and hands and this involved trips to germany and switzerland to inspect these pieces in the factories but soprod decided um, that they were going to delay the delivery of my 30 movements this is 30 from a batch of 100 i believe uh, we're going to delay them for 18 months and that was devastating because I had bills to pay. I had invoices to pay. And also, I had about six or seven buyers that had committed to buying the watch um, uh, uh, on paper, essentially. They hadn't seen the whole thing in the reel, uh, but were excited about the project. And their money was essential uh, from a cash flow perspective for this big, this business, this new business. So I was absolutely devastated by Soprod handling me so poorly. Um, and it's not unusual for Swiss companies to do this in the watch industry. They work on their own terms. And a small British startup is very much down the list uh, of priorities for them, though to my life, absolutely devastating. I remember holding up because i had no access to them it was it was very frustrating i couldn't i couldn't shout at them i could speak to them on the telephone but you were just handled very formally and told to put it in an email and then of course that email was ignored um i remember making a signboard like a like the bob dylan song making a signboard saying please please marilise she was the lady uh, that i was dealing with five movements it's the five i needed to build so i could actually get paid for those watches with me making a sad face i still have that photo somewhere and um <laughs> they they laughed about it and she said as much we thought that was so funny it wasn't funny to me it was incredibly serious 
Yeah, lol. Mega lol. Yeah, my life is on the line. Thanks, Merrilise. They said that they would send me five movements, so it worked. Yeah, I built five watches immediately. I only have one wealthy friend, Rob, and he bought a watch, um, which was terrific. So one went to him, and the other four uh, were went to some guys that heard about me through American Express Centurion, you know, the fancy credit card. Uh, you have to be earning quite a lot of money with Centurion. You get the black metal uh, credit card. And they had a newsletter because Amex is not far from us. They're based in Brighton. Um, and they put a thing out and we sold those four watches through um, American Express, essentially. And that was essential because with that money from those five watch sales, I was able to pay uh, the German case makers, um, the Swiss dial makers, hand makers, and start to get the ball rolling. It's getting very exciting. And I then got some more bad news, which was Soprod were going to delay the movements. This still delayed 30 movements by another six months. And so I'm two years down now, still looking at that same dial on the wall, thinking, do I still love this? Do I still want to do this? I am now stuck. I, I have no watches to sell. I cannot make any money. I'd pretty much given up my uh, uh, my design business. And so Schofield was essential to making some money. I was going to say, so you, at this point, you are doing what? Like, are you working on other projects? Do you have other clients? Are you getting any money in anywhere else? Is your wife supporting you? What's happening? Okay. So Alice, my wife, she is uh, a, uh, a a nurse and she works with people with learning difficulties. She was heading up this new campaign for treating people with learning difficulties in hospitals properly. So she was bringing in some money, but paid by the NHS, so not a lot. I had a graphic design agency, which I'd begun to close down a year before so that I could concentrate on Schofield. And it was a deliberate family decision, which was I could never make Schofield work working on the graphic design industry. I just couldn't have done that. Um, so I decided in order to do a job properly, it needed my time. And so, no, I wasn't earning any money. It was really difficult. And so what I did in that time, which I'm thankful for, was to research the watch industry and do everything I could around the brand that had not yet been done to the same quality as the watch. So, for example, I could spend all of that time building the website and making sure I had the coolest website on the planet within the watch industry. And this I can quantify because I had two databases that were essential to the beginning of Schofield. One was a database on other luxury websites from Bulgari to Gucci to all of the loved watch brands. And I would give them a numerical value based on a number of criteria. So page loading, general vibe, how cool the photography was, uh, how deep you had to go to get more information, how much information was on the homepage, etc. So that I had some metrics that I could measure with my own Schofield website and make sure I could beat them, all of them, including Rolex's website. 
because that's something I could do and knew I could do well, which is build website. I've built hundreds of websites for clients in the, in the past. Yeah, I mean, it really shows because your website is a work of art in itself and all of the graphical design that goes alongside Schofield stands out as something quite special in the industry. I'm amazed, shall I say, I'm awed by the patience that you had and that Alice had also with the, with the venture, with the journey. And I just wonder, what was it like for you both during that period when Soprod were putting the brakes on? And I mean, you must have been obsessed with watchmaking at this point. Did you talk about anything else? Did it dominate every conversation at dinner? Was it running around your head? Like, how did you feel? Yeah, I would say I felt very apprehensive uh, all the time. I knew the areas that I had control of, like graphic design, ephemera, like the letters and the paperwork, um, the a box design, which I could push even further. Now I had even more time to do it. Uh, straps, which was uh, an accessory that we launched from the get-go, alternative straps. It was those things that I would almost obsess about whilst the watch was doing its thing in the background. I had no control over the watch. The pieces were being made. I hadn't seen them yet, by the way, uh, other than the visits to the factories. I hadn't seen production. But that was all going on in the background whilst I was making contacts, speaking to people, and just building all the other bits and pieces. So the conversations uh, at dinner wouldn't necessarily be about the watch, but more about Schofield as a whole. And that's an important distinction because Schofield is more than a watch brand to me. And I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I mean that holistically, it's a brand that you're allowed to be into because it's sincere, right? There's nothing tacky about being into Schofield. It's, I hope, a kind of cool brand where you can totally subscribe to it. And that's because it was built at a time where I, I, I had to move away from the watch itself, the signal, because I had no choice. And I put everything into those databases to study to be able to work out where it was that I was going to make a mark and a niche for the brand. I think you achieved that in a way that certainly wasn't apparent to us. And I, when I say us, I mean the watch media at the time, but as the years have rolled by and the Schofield design language has deepened and become richer and become ever more defined, we now see it as almost something entirely other from other brands and all those little bits you do around the watches themselves is uh well it's it's a case study in itself i think what we should do is dedicate an entire podcast to discussing that that's what we're going to get you back on the show to talk about but forgive me for sending you off down uh, a different path let's talk about what happened when those soprod movements actually arrived okay there is one event actually rob just before the soprods arrived um that really shaped the brand and my place within it. Because at this stage, I, I had no place. I was the designer. I was certainly, there was never going to be a photo of me anywhere. I had no interest in that. I was never going to talk at uh, any event. And I certainly wasn't going to front the brand at all. That was never my intention. I had no interest in it. But I went to see, on recommendation of a friend, the owner of a watch shop in Tunbridge Wells, to show him my wooden box, which was made at this point, and a plastic prototype with a 
which was hand painted sprayed silver with Christmas tree silver paint and a paper dial, a plastic crystal, a strap. I think I'd done the strap, no buckle and lots of lovely paperwork, of course, because that's the bit I could do. And I went to see this chap at the shop in Tunbridge Wells and he took ages to come out of the back room. It was really condescending. You know, you're sitting there typically nervous of his reaction. He came out and he opened the box and he closed the box. And without saying a word, he went to the other end of the shop, picked up a magazine, dialed a number and said, James. Now, this is James Gurney of QP magazine. And he said, James, I have something for you. You need to meet this guy. James and this chap from the watch shop in Tunbridge Wells made an appointment for me. They didn't ask me. They made an appointment for me for the following week in London to meet James Gurney of Salon QP magazine, of which I did. I went to London and I waited for James and I saw James and he opened the box, which had my plastic prototype in it, did not take the watch out of the box. He closed the box, slid the box back over to me and said, tell me about you. And I realized at that point, I had done no work on me, the story of who I am and what place I have within the brand. And I realized as a journalist that James Gurney is, that he wants that story. I'm a middle-class son of a teacher and a yoga teacher. (laughs) You know, my story is so utterly boring and not compelling at all. And I felt that if I had to shape my story and make it interesting, then I would be pulling the wool over people's eyes. And I did not ever want that. One of my uh, briefs to myself in starting a watch company is there was going to be no trickery, no fakery, no exaggeration, so no hyperbole at any point. Even in our first brochure, if I did a render, because of course I had to do renders because I didn't have a watch. So in the first brochure, which was first for the first Salon QP in 2011, I wrote render on the pictures. Now, nobody does this in the watch industry, and most of the images you see in magazines are, of course, renders, not photographs. But I felt that this was the beginning of my intention uh, for my brand, was I was going to be involved with none of the shenanigans that I felt some of the other watch brands were involved with. And declaring a render, even though probably unnecessary, kind of typified my relationship to Schofield. So I started to generate that story, being a lover of the coast, grew up very near the coast, and had started to place Schofield on the coast thematically. Most watch companies, as you all know, have a geography. We've got under the sea watches, on the sea watches, in aeroplane watches, in space watches. We made the coast our geography. And luckily, nobody else is there or really has been since. There's been a couple quartz watches that have kind of tried. Um, But the coast is our domain. And the way we articulate that is with the lighthouse. And the lighthouse was a device, as in a graphical device, that we put on the back of the watches to help express all of the sentiments of Schofield Watch Company online because we were only selling direct. We weren't going to be in shops. So the lighthouse was our badge of great British engineering. It was a good timekeeper. 
It was your friend in times of need and all of the other romance and uh, kind of um, historical uh, warm glow that you get from looking back and uh, specifically at lighthouse stories. So that's where the lighthouse comes in and the British coast. All of these elements were the elements that I were working on prior to the Soprods arriving. So here we are, Rob. We are somewhere in August 2011. I have committed to Salon QP in the November of 2011, the first one at the Saatchi Gallery that my now friend James Gurney had set up. It's a paid event. It was more money than I could afford because I hadn't really got any money at this point. And I still have no watches. None. I was promised they were going to be delivered, as in built. The very first Sigmund, by the way, were built in Germany, in an atelier in Germany. So the cases were German, the dials were Swiss, the hands were Swiss, the crowns were Swiss, the movements are Swiss, the case backs were uh, almost certainly German, but then had engraving further done in Germany. The straps, I sourced the fabrics, so they were British fabrics, but the straps were made in Germany. That first watch, the Sigmund, has Germany on the dial. And uh, they were still in Germany and they weren't in my hands. And so I, I have an entire business, right, and no watches. And I think by late August, I start to get a delivery of some of the polished version. We did 300 polished, 100 DLC coated watches. I've got an interesting question for you. Um, interesting to a watchmaker, at least. You said the case was made in Germany, but the crown was made in Switzerland. You had a different manufacturer for the case and the crown, which is, I would say, not common. Was there a reason for that due to your requirements of the crown's machining? So the one-stop shop that was making the case had outsourced the crown to go with the case, and that was made in Switzerland. Not actually a separate supplier to me, as in I didn't see an invoice from a separate supplier. And I'm only clarifying this because now that's exactly what I do. The crowns are made in Switzerland, where my cases at the moment are made in the UK. And so we have different suppliers for all the different parts of the watch currently. Amazing. Um, and that is a distinction worth making because it's really hard work yeah. managing all of those suppliers. I do wish I could sketch a watch design on a napkin, uh, apocryphally, that I hear other watch companies do, <laughs> uh, send it to a one-stop shop and bingo, you've got your watch back. And uh, I, I can't do that. Uh, I make a rod for my back and certainly make life hard for myself. And it's because I need to be in control of all the separate elements and not one company can make those things to my standard. And in fact, most one-stop shops will outsource different components to different companies. It is a remarkable rod that you've made for your back there by having such incredible standards because the crown and the case are two things that you would think you'd never really want to separate. And I asked the question, not just because it popped into my mind when you said it explicitly, but because of how obvious it is that the case and the crown of, let's say, the modern beta watches uh, are from different places because they're so specific in, uh, in the set of skills that's needed to bring them to life in such a beautiful way. I know because I own one, of course, and the crown is one of my favorite elements of the whole design, and it's incredibly complex for a crown. And uh, thank goodness you found somewhere on earth that could actually do it. Absolutely. And the finding of somewhere on earth to do these things is... Uh, a, a part of my job that takes considerable time 
and uh, careful handling in order to retain them. Uh, these assets, essentially, my, my black book um, of suppliers. And very difficult because they're working with a small British watch company that has very little authority uh, in their eyes, at least. And I order generally the minimum order quantities. Um, and I am incredibly fussy uh, from a QC point of view, an engineering point of view, an aesthetics point of view, uh, you know, the, the mechanics of the item um, itself, how it works, how it handles, how it feels. Um, and all of that. So I'm not an easy customer. Uh, I do tend to offset that by paying my invoices immediately. Uh, I always feel that you can't be fussy and not pay your invoices. If you weren't fussy, you could then be late in paying invoices if you were so inclined. But uh, I, I'm at the school of thought that uh, I, if I'm fussy, then at least I will like the fact that I pay the invoices very quickly. So anyway, let's go back to late August, where I'm starting to see some of the polished watches they're amazing. I'm so happy. I have a very simple litmus test for uh, watch quality. And that is, is if you put it in an airport duty-free cabinet, will it look out of place next to some of the common fodder that you find in such places? And I felt, no, my watch would stand out as being something really quite awesome. Uh, the quality of polish that was done on the Polish Signalman uh, was amazing. It had achieved that black polish phenomena where the uh, specular reflections are black uh, that stainless steel has. The dial was finished in a, uh, a paint with a very low reflectance that was used in satellites. And so it had this, it was a gray black, but it wasn't reflective. So it had great clarity. The step in the dial was very deep. The hands were perfect and polished, as were the appliques. Uh, everything about it was just brilliant. Uh, the crown was a pancake a crown, very flat, very wide, so good for talk um, and didn't dig into the skin at all. And I deliberately chosen not to engrave the crown as a knee-jerk reaction to every single manufacturer on the planet that said, your crown isn't engraved, you need to engrave your crown, which makes me want to do the complete opposite, which I did. Um, the crown of the signalman, as we're talking crowns, is a facsimile mathematically of the dome of the crystal. Um, and there is a groove around the outside of the crown that matches, again, mathematically the bezel. Uh, so it's a kind of nice marriage of curves um, that you find across the watch. This was a screw-down crown. The laser engraving on the back was just beautiful, big lighthouse there and all the other details. Um, and the whole project had come together beautifully. I was incredibly proud. And realized at this point that we, we'd done it. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Alice saying, you know, we're here after all of that work. Uh, 2011 from late 2007 was just constant grind for this moment. And the watch was, it was just brilliant. I was proud to wear it. Interestingly, I think um, the watch is everything I needed it to be. So going back to the Panerais, the Bell and Rosses and the Anibis of my inspiration, it was a watch that was round. It told the time. It was nothing fancy going on there. It was in a case shape that was quite unusual. In fact, I patented it because uh, from a design perspective, uh, because it sits on a wide base and tapers up to a, a smaller uh, window, uh, which makes it wear like a large solid watch, but doesn't look like an oversized watch. Uh, 44 mils diameter. 
many of those watches are verging on the oversized look, and that's not something I find attractive at all. So having a slightly smaller dial renders this quite unusual case shape. And I should say at this point, it is one of the things I am most proud of in my design career is designing a case shape that can be spotted across the room. Other journalists have said it's an iconic case shape. I think I might have said that myself. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Yeah, yeah. For me, that's, that's it, right? As a designer, to have made a watch that can be spotted under a cuff without being wacky, you know, without being a clown's watch, is, is great. That's exactly where you want to be as a designer. Well, I mean, man, it's the goal, and it's a goal that very few brands, not even individuals, but brands themselves, achieve in a lifetime or an entire brand ontogeny, as it may be. I mean, look at what Patek and Audemars and Vacheron have been rolling out for the last 30, 40, 50 years, the same damn silhouette, because... When they get it right, they've got it right, and you don't need to change that. And that's exactly what you did straight out of the gate. You had something that looked like nothing else, that didn't look crazy or wacky, as you said, or off the wall or deliberately contrived. It was designed from the ground up and given the wide foundation for Schofield on the wrist, which, by the way, as a wearer, I can say this, makes it wear very comfortably and low profile, bizarrely low profile, given its 44 millimeter diameter. And you've just, you've taken it and you've run with it and you've developed an entire watch DNA from that idea that is still very prevalent today in the most recent models that you've released. And I'm, I'm very glad to see it. I do, I do imagine knowing how your mind works that there's something else bubbling in the background there for the future. But considering the majesty of this K-shape, I'm very pleased to see that it's had such a long run in the limelight. Yeah. And that's because really of the infrastructure that went behind building that first one. That first one was very expensive to build. And when I talk about this in design, when people uh, w want to design something, whatever it may be, my advice is don't, don't bother. Just go and buy what it is that you have fallen in love with, even if it's only 80% of the way there, because that extra 20% to get to your 100% will be way more expensive than the item ever would have been in the first place. Uh, so just don't bother, you know, just go and buy, buy a watch and be done rather than thinking you're going to uh, make a whole watch business. But of course, that wasn't on my mind necessarily. It was a process of incremental steps uh, that led me to 2011 Salon QP, polished watches, and the DLC variety. I hadn't even seen. There was a hundred of those. I hadn't even seen them. They were FedExed to the show for me to pick up at the show. We'd had the, the cabinets. We'd had uh, everything in place. I'd had the renders, of course, which I'd done myself. I had to learn how to do the software in order to render my own watches so I could help visualize them. And then at Salon QP, we launched the watch. And my business plan was three watches in year one, 20 watches in year two, 100 watches in year three. And there was nothing beyond that because I didn't expect realistically that I would ever get past year three, even though I'd made a limited edition run of 300 watches that's only the engraving on the back it doesn't mean i've made 300 watches at this point i'd only bought 30 movements and wait waited two years for them so we had some watches and we were at the show and i took my brother-in-law uh matt with me and we were dressed in tweed uh, all the Swiss were there doing their very best, trying to look informal as possible. Brown boots, blue leather jeans, open collar, blue shirt tucked in. Uh, we were in three-piece tweed suits, very British at the time. 
And Bremont were the only other British watch company that had uh, already made a name for themselves. They were exhibiting downstairs at the show. They're always downstairs. We're always upstairs. Uh, they're bigger than us and could afford more expensive stands than us. And Matt and I just thought, Do you know what? We might as well just have fun, uh, have a laugh, because what the hell? We don't even know what we're doing here. We showed the watch. The watch got quite a lot of attention. Uh, There's a lot of buzz around it. I believe Bramont were slightly nervous of us at the beginning because they didn't know what we were going to develop into. Uh, and were we going to steal the crown of being a British watchmaker? We never have, by the way, but nevertheless, it was all very exciting. And I sold there and then took orders for 15 watches, which is quite a lot at a show, by the way. It uh, doesn't matter what anybody says at a show, you'll be very lucky to sell watches. It's a very difficult environment to sell watches. But we took orders for 15 watches. And then after that, we got a whole load of press. We got a lot of attention. And I sold 100 watches within the first three months. And I had sold out of the Signalman DLC, the black one, a hundred of those, halfway through uh, the second year. And I'd sold nearly all 300 Signalman by the end of that second year, 200 of which had sold really by the end of the first year. Did you know how unusual it was at the fair when you took 15 orders? Because you say now, obviously, that's a lot. And I can attest to someone that's been at many fairs, that is a hell of a lot of orders to take at a fair face to face. <laughs> not at all in fact uh i thought this might be typical of watch fairs wow. and it's only, if only since doing the subsequent decade uh that you realize that those numbers went down and down in fact what happened to us i think it was 15 on the first 14 or 15 on the first seven on the second uh year in 2012 and then by 2013 even with two new watches under my belt um we were still going strong but Salon QP had become a club, and there was, uh, I think we had seen 20 owners at the watch show coming to speak to me, to see me, to see the new stuff, but not to buy. They'd already had one. And so I realized that the return on the investment of doing shows was diminishing based on the fact that we were basically talking to people that I could talk to on the phone anytime or over email, but they had come to the show and it started to lose its shine doing the show. It was good fun, but at the same time, exhausting, very expensive. You know, a typical watch show in the UK will cost, uh, including VAT, about six grand for a stand for Schofield. Then you've got to do all the design around it, get all of your products up and running. You then have to stay in a hotel, pay for staff. And if you're like us, spend an inordinate amount of money on our clothes uh, to make sure that we stand out from the crowd. And interestingly, year two, everybody else was in tweeds. And thankfully, we'd moved away from the hackneyed, stereotypical British thing, you know, road bikes and flat caps, which absolutely is not my brand. And I quickly nipped that in the bud because I didn't want it to represent the band, uh, the brand. And we wore lovely, uh, classic italian tailoring black suits with calico lining uh, just gorgeous um and that's what we wore then so we looked very smart that second year i remember that well 
And the third year, I think we went a bit more contemporary and a bit different and uh, everybody was left a year behind us. And uh, that always felt really good. What I want to know, or really what our listeners want to know, because as you know, the Real Time Show is very interactive. We get a lot of questions via Instagram into our email inboxes every week. Everybody wants to know, well, actually, it's just my mom, but my mom wants to know, when are you going to do a Schofield kimono? That's a great idea. I always struggle with with the clothing side of things because we did a Schofield jacket and there's only a few of those about embroidered all we make is treasure across the back. Uh, kimono is a great idea because I'm a big fan of Maharishi and they make some beautiful kimonos of which I'm a lucky owner of a couple of those uh, and I wear them like, like cardigans essentially. Um, and many times I've toyed with the idea of doing uh, kind of workwear chore jackets and um, bits and pieces like that. I researched and prototyped a, a kind of little apron, like a market stall apron um, that you could wear with Schofield on with the big pockets on it. It just didn't work. The jackets didn't work. And then the jackets that I had got became unavailable. But then actually in, in the interim, I've met a guy who's got, uh, he makes clothes and uh, in fact made our strap kit, one of our accessories we can talk about in this uh, next episode. Um, but the strap kit was made by tailors essentially because it was a, a cloth uh, a cloth piece of mercantile uh, rather than a leatherware thing. Anyway, he's got a new piece of gear that can do all the silk screen printing onto thicker fabrics so not t-shirts like the back of a jacket you know where you have the military uh, uh lady riding a torpedo kind of uh imagery you know and that kind of thing and that really oh i'm getting excited about that that's maybe something i could work with is doing maybe a pea jacket or something along those lines so maybe not a kimono but maybe a pea jacket put me down for one of those put me down for one yeah Medium slash large. I'm I'm getting girthier by the day, Giles. I need to get in the gym like you. <laughs> Good. So going back to Salon QP, we'd sold these watches. One of the things that Matt and I did that was very different to all the other brands was flirt, basically. We were really friendly. People walk by. They're very tenuous whether they want to come and talk to us or not. We would grab them, buy, buy the jackets and bring them in and say, right, let us tell you about Schofield. Um, and that was really exciting because we had nothing to lose. We were a, a, a brand new watch company. Uh, I had three watches I was keen on selling in year one. I'd done four already, four or five. So I was ahead of that. Um, and so whatever happened next just didn't matter really, um, other than having to pay for bills and order more movements, etc. So we were up and running, Rob, and that really is uh, where we are now. It's no different. It's exactly the same. Schofield has not changed one iota, I would say, since 2008, which is when 2008, 2009, when it started to become a business. Well, you say that and the consistency of the branding is absolutely there. But I have to say that the watches are getting better. And that's not really a change per se, I guess, but it's just an evolution or a natural development. And I got my first Schofield years later than I should have done, really, as is the case for everyone that bought a Schofield that wasn't the signal man. And I picked up the bronze Japanese beta, which I adore and wear regularly and enjoy watching it excites other people when they see it on my wrist. And first of all, they don't know what it is. Many of them, if they're not in the watch industry, and if they are, then some of them haven't seen the Schofield in real life before. And they, they, you know, reach to try it on. And I gladly let them because it converts everybody that comes across it. 
But since I purchased that, you released something else in the same line, Japanese-inspired, a B5. And it might be the most beautiful watch. And I think I've used the word beautiful to describe many watches over the years, but it really, really applies perfectly to this watch. And I'd like you to tell us, because this watch came out, uh, when was it? Autumn 2022, late summer 2022. And uh, it was it was stunning from the, from the get-go. And I, I don't think there's many of them left now, but I'd like you to just focus on that one a little bit if you could, just to talk about some of the difficulties that you faced bringing to life such an ambitious design, most pointedly the case back which is like nothing else I've ever seen before in watchmaking. So how did, how did you do it? Thanks, Rob, um, for all of that. And it really pleases me to hear that because um, the Beta B5, and I'll get to all the kind of uh, wordage in a minute explaining that, is a tricky watch to sell. It's a tricky watch to sell because it is a niche watch from a niche brand. So what I would call super niche, super niche, anything's tricky to sell. You've got to be really into it. And if you get it, you really get it. It really talks to you. Um, but if you're not quite there, then it could be difficult crossing that line, uh, to, which leads to a purchase. Um, and it's a niche watch because the beta has a heritage of being pretty niche. When the beta started, it was our third watch. We went from Signalman and Signalman DLC, first watch, to the Black Lamp, which was a huge curveball for the brand because we'd gone from lighthouse, romance, classical watch styling. This watch was the master of everything. It's a watch that could be worn with a T-shirt, but also as a dress watch. It had shiny bits um, and, and complications to a Black Lamp that was very expensive, concept carbon fiber case one of the first uh after the audemars piguet royal oak custom carbon and a couple of other very high-end ones but here we are strapping it to people's wrists around the uh eight grand price point uh with a unitas movement in it deliberately unconcept movement a workhorse movement um and uh again the same case shape and then from that engineering because that case was made in the uk the carbon fiber case from that engineering and case design which is tweaked version of the signalman case we made the beta and the beta um was an error it was an error because firstly i misnamed it i called it a beta and i honestly mean it to be a beta but it's really condescending to those that can't afford 3,000 quid on a watch that you're meant to wear and beat up. It's quite a presumption on my part. That's not, in fact, entirely what I meant by calling it a beta. But the name itself is an error, and it should never have been called the beta. The other issue was, was that we made three of them. There were three different varieties. The beta really should have been a single model, not a family of watches. We made a steel one with a grey dial. We made a blued titanium one, as in it was heat-treated titanium, with a green dial. And we made a bronze one with a blue dial. And it took over a year for anybody in any real numbers to buy that watch. It was such a niche watch because it had these uh, hand-finished cases by me all of the cases were finished in a way that the watch industry hadn't seen. 
So the steel, we satinated and we did that with a process of finishing uh, that was very unusual. And it gave this lovely eggshell satin finish. Um, and it's not something you see in the watch industry at all, more of a, uh, an industrial finish, but delicate, but industrial nonetheless. The blue titanium hadn't been done before. There'd been PVD blue cases, uh, but very rarely, but nobody had heat treated titanium to 800 degrees Celsius and cooled it in such a way to make the whole thing blue in a classic watchmaking blue way. They were beautiful cases and they oxidize over time and we still see them occasionally and they're a bit darker than they were when they were sold, but very unusual watches. And the bronze, we patinated. So there's a little minor argument going around who was the first to do bronze cases. We were certainly extremely early adopters uh, because this watch was first conceived in 2012 and prototyped and launched in 2013. But I hand patinated the cases. So this was certainly a first in the watch industry. Uh, raw bronze watches were out there, but not patinated. And I would force the patination chemically with my own recipe. Um, and my own methodology in order to give me some consistency, which is very difficult to do when hand finishing metals. Um, and we launched these three beta watches that also had enamel dials. And that was another conundrum because most people associate enamel with being delicate. These were cold cure enamel. I mean, you could throw these dials across the room and they would just bounce. They're indestructible. But we put them into these watches. They cost £3,000 each, uh, more or less, uh, and they were called a beta. And like I said, it took a year before we started to sell them. In that, in that time frame of a year, the costs of making the dials went up and up and up. By the way, the dials were made in the UK as well, which is very, very hard to do. And there are limitations on what you can do, which is why there's no loom on the dials, only on the hands. They're Swiss hands uh, because nobody in the UK can do loom dials. And so we had a pen enameler do the enameling, and then they went off to a car dial printers that then did the printing for us. Lots of prototyping because we couldn't get the ink to stick to the enamel, all of those kind of dramas. I was dining off the success of the Sigmaman and the Black Lamp. So the company had money to do these kind of prototypes. It was fun because I could do projects like make films and do artworks and all of these kind of cool things and make these quirky watches. But nobody bought them. And nobody bought them because it was incredibly difficult to articulate what this watch, the beta, was all about. Then in a year, they started to pick up the sales. And I was like, okay, this is really cool. But the trouble is the watches are becoming too expensive for me to manufacture at that price point. Okay. We don't retail and we don't retail, by the way, this is a side note, because the watches are too expensive to make. I wouldn't have the margins. If I sold one watch to Selfridges and they've asked me, as have Harrods and all the other department stores, if I could be part of their uh, stock, um, we can't afford to because the watches are simply too expensive to make. If I sold one watch at 50%, we would be making a loss. We couldn't even do it from a loss leader advertising point of view and therefore never have. So when I say shop, I mean my shop where I am recording this now. And it's a small shop uh, on a classic British high street, flint buildings up and down the high street, three shops. And I'm one of those. So the beta became too expensive and I had to pull the pin on the beta. I couldn't sell it anymore. I was losing money on the betas. I wasn't selling enough and they were becoming too expensive to make. And what got stuck in between were bits of watches that were half made, essentially. So dials that were enameled and were not printed. 
And I thought, oh, it's a fun experiment. I had this titanium case and I sent it off to Japan. This is the first link with, the, uh, with Japan and the beta. I sent it off to a satellite polishers, mirror polishers, satellite mirror polishers in Japan, because they were people that could polish titanium in a way that made it look oh, just like a mirror, but titanium. So when you say satellite mirror polishers, you mean satellites for space? Yes. Whoa. They're a firm that polish satellite mirrors in Japan. And I reached out and said, could you polish this watch? Nobody else will touch it because it's so awful. And it means if you over-polish my watches, they become radiused, so they look soapy. They look like, uh, when I say soapy, I mean like a bar of soap. They're all rounded around the edges if they're over-polished. So they're very tricky to polish. Um, and I, it was extremely expensive. I got this one case done, and this was only for me, just to see what it would look like, polished titanium. Oh, man, it came back. It was the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And I had a black dial that was unprinted. And our dials have a gold ring around the outside. Now, that's the brass dial blank. It has a lip around the outside and around the cannon pinion hole in the middle. And the void in between those two lips, that's where you filled it with enamel, right? And then you would lap it back down flat. Um, but you could see that gold edge and that gold ring around the cannon pinion hole. It looked really cool. It was a glossy black dial. We put it in the uh, polish case and it was one watch for me. I thought it was super cool. And I put it on Instagram and immediately a collector in America wanted it. And so did a number of other people. They couldn't have it because it was a one of one. Uh, I need money more than I need watches. And so I sold that to the collector. Um, and it got me thinking, what if I made more bare boneses? Now, we didn't go down the satellite mirror polishers again because it was just ridiculously expensive. Uh, and when I say expensive, we're talking uh, maybe a thousand pounds to polish one watch case. So, as you can imagine, on a three thousand pound watch, that is just prohibitive. It's not going to happen. So, we started making bare bones, and then the beaters, we would mash up different dials with different cases, using up all the bits that we had. Uh, and that was all well and good. And then they all ran out, or some parts ran out. And I was in a position where we were fully set up from an infrastructure point of view. But like I said, the dials were too expensive. Um, and so I needed to make a new dial. And that's when we made the first bronze beater, uh, at this point, the beta B2. Uh, which was a patinated beta, then rubbed back uh, through to the bronze with a blue dial in it. And we offered it in both the raw state and the patinated state. And I am normally quite uncomfortable blowing my own trumpet, but I do honestly feel that our bronze watch is the bronze watch uh, of all bronze watches. So with the beta now, we had the beta B2, and then the B2B2 carried on selling. And so I something ran out. B2, by the way, means batch two. So with all of our watches, we've done limited editions. And limited editions are fixed. So the Sigmund was 300. The Sigmund DLC was 100. They are fixed, fixed numbers. By doing batches, I can say I'm making them in small batches. And we do because we're a small watch company. But it means that I can then change the variety and the number and some tweaks to the watches whenever the, the need comes up. So, for example, with the B2, I ran out of crowns and needed to have a new crown. Now, it's really boring making the same thing. I hate reordering parts that are the same. 
In fact, I rarely do it. In fact, just yesterday, I'm coming close to running out of polishing cloths that come with the watches. So instead of pressing reorder, which would be really simple, I design a whole new one. And I design a whole new one within the theme of the old one, but different, different colors. Uh, and of course, it takes a long time to get that job done. I'm still at it. Um, that's because I hate doing top-ups. Um, so what I do here is, this is an opportunity to design a new crown. Great, design a new crown, get that made. Um, and with that, I get to do a new case back. And as you know, I love case backs. It's party time uh, on the back of the watch. I can have a lot of fun there. I can move away from some of the conservative uh, sensibilities in design that you'll see on the front of the watch. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a canvas for some graphic design. So I can have a bit of fun there. And, and I certainly do. And, uh, we have the case bats laser engraved right here in the UK. Um, and the B3 is an, another variety of, uh, nice graphical layout, uh, for the watch, but now with a new crown. So we're running the B3 and we're still making the B3. I think I've got about 10 left and that's either raw or patinated again, uh, for those B3s. And then I wanted to do something a bit different. I love Japan and I am a Japanophile. I've studied Japan my whole life. I did martial arts as a kid. I uh, always wanted to go. And my brother lives in Japan. And now I have been there a number of times. He lives in Tokyo and have soaked up Japan uh, in every way possible. And I believe the Japanese to be masters of design and the subtlety in design. It's not decoration. Uh, the Chinese and the Orient can excel at that and the Middle East. But the Japanese, it's all about the skill in craft and the subtleties and nuance of proportion and layout. And these are the key elements that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast to understanding the classical register of watch design. It is about layout. Layout is the organization of elements uh, on your canvas, be that a, a, a flyer or be it a watch dial. That's layout. Scaling um, is the size of those objects, crucial to layout, uh, but a separate discipline, if you like. And the Japanese do these, this so well. And with my time in Japan, I love the fact that uh, they are the cleanest people, right? I mean, they are so clean. You don't mind being jammed into a railway carriage, which is the only time, by the way, you get that close to other other humans in Japan. Uh, they're also clean, and, and it's not it's not it's not gross in other, any way. Being close to other Japanese people, uh, something I find fairly repellent in the UK has to be said. The streets are clean. Uh, their clothes are so clean. It's just magical. But they don't polish everything like we do. It's as if we have to prove our cleanliness by polishing all of our brassware. Right, all the door handles and little plaques that you get on on the fronts of uh, your solicitors, all highly polished. In Japan, they don't do that. They call patination the grease of life, and they like patination. Okay, it shows the history. They do the same with woodwork and and many other forms of metalwork. Uh, I love that, and I was like, ah, oh, I already do this patination, but I burnish it back to give it this seaside look, this nautical look. What if I make a bronze beater? a love letter to Japan and patinate the case as far as I possibly can. How deep can I make it? And this is what I did. Uh, a lot of schoolboy experiments, man in a shed, mucking about with chemicals, goggles, and a really burnt out lab coat. 
um, to come up with a concoction and a methodology where I could get a very thick oxide that is stable because you can get really thick, but actually it comes off in your hands and you don't want that. That's dirty. So it has to be stabilized. And that's what I achieved with the bronze B to B4. The patination on the bronze, and by the way, we use a bronze that's slightly softer. Uh, and that's a that's a real buzzword in the watch industry because if you say soft, people's shoulders go up uh, with with nervousness. Soft from a metal point of view does not necessarily transcribe to you going to dent it more. Whether your steel has been treated in a fancy way like sin do, you know, they cotylize their metals. Doesn't make any difference if you're going to smack a watch into a turnstile. You're still going to you're still going to mark it. So we use a softer bronze, very uh, ever so slightly softer, simply because it is more reactive. It patinates more readily. So when you do scratch or dent your beta watch, it oxidizes quickly. So you don't see a very a very contrasting gold mark. Uh, within a few hours, it starts to go uh, tone itself down, and within a couple of months, it's blending back into the case beautifully. This watch also featured on the back a drain cover. Now, for those that have been to Tokyo, you often see people standing over manhole covers, drain covers, photographing them because they are cast and enameled and they are beautiful. The designs are beautiful, sometimes uh, cartoon characters, manga characters, uh, sometimes very graphical, symmetrical designs of blossoms and all sorts. They're, they're truly beautiful. And on your B4, we have the uh, cherry blossom, the, uh, one of the, uh, well, there are no real official flowers of Japan, uh, but it is uh, one of the uh, recognized flowers of Japan, the cherry blossom. And we have ginkgo, uh, a tree that you'll find there. And we also have in the middle a character called Daruma, and he's a good luck character. And the kanji on his, on his tummy is, uh, means good luck. And these little red paper mache characters you give to people when they face a challenge. And I thought this was really cool. I was like, this is just perfect because you could give this watch to somebody if you wanted to, or if you had a challenge yourself, you color in one of Daruma's eyes when the challenge is about to begin. And when you complete the challenge, then you color in the other eye and he can see. And it's about you being distracted and not distracted when you're doing your challenge because you can't see anything else but the challenge in front of you. I always thought this was really cool. And I tried to make a little sticker that you could place inside Daruma's eyes on the case back. Uh, so it would be the first interactive case back in the history of watchmaking. And I thought, this is really cool. Uh, spoke to all the best sticker people, people that grow stickers from molecules, you know, really fancy stuff. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't touch it because they were like, we cannot test it. We don't know if it's going to fall off and everything like that. So Why? I don't get it. Of all the things. Oh, well, because it's how long do you keep going with an idea? You can you can be bashing your head against the wall and another year's gone by and I need to launch the watch because the company's sitting on assets that need to make money. You see, it's a, it's a conundrum. You can hold stock. Uh, I can hold a safe full of watches and it feels really good, right, for the company to have a, a nice safe full of watches. But if they're not moving from the safe, then that's no good. The whole point is it's got to be throughput, right? We've got to have watches coming in and watches going out, and that's how the business survives. Talking of a watch that's been going out recently, and unsurprisingly so, the follow-up to the B4. Now, the B4, as you alluded to there, is the one that I purchased myself. But the B5, oh my goodness, the B5. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's just talk a little bit about that now. We'll wrap up very soon, okay. and we'll pick up, maybe we'll talk a little bit about 
let's say, the pin that comes with the B5 in the next episode together. But wow, look, that B5. Tell me about the B5 dial inspiration and then tell me about that case back because the drain cover thing is something that deserves as much airtime as we can possibly give it. Thanks, Rob. Right, so the B5 is the follow-up to the B4. The B4 is dark. It's in a patinated bronze case with a blue dial uh, with a laser-engraved case back with all the details that I just mentioned. But that project wasn't done. That love letter to Japan wasn't finished. There is so much beauty and light in Japan that I felt that there needed to be a pairing of watches. Um, The patinated effect, I wanted to carry over to a steel case. But that was tricky because we're now into a material that doesn't patinate stainless steel. Apart from our Brutalist finish, which was an extremely heavy bead blasting that we did on some earlier beaters that render it like concrete. And those pores, those little craters that you hammer into the steel, fill up with grease and dirt and effectively becomes patinated. But with this watch, I wanted it to be have a brightness about it. And dirt isn't bright, right? So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plate this watch in tin. Um, and so we made some cases and we altered the machining path of the case in order to be able to give us a more obvious fingerprint. That is the machining marks that are left behind prior to finishing. Um, and then I went off the idea of tin because I thought, actually, that doesn't bring to the party at all. It just makes it really confusing. And so I bead blast it, but I changed the media and I changed the pressure and I did it in such a way that it was light enough to give me the texture I wanted, but leave the machining marks very subtly underneath the bead blaster. It's like a double layer of finishing. It's really cool. And we call it middle text now because it's become a really, it's just a brilliant finish and I really like it. And it kind of works really well with this watch. It is something else. It really is something else. I've never seen anything like it before. When I first heard that you were leaving machining marks exposed on some of the watch cases, I was not convinced. And then I saw it in real life and as someone that likes good quality machining and likes to see how things are made and appreciated your likening it to a fingerprint, I fell in love with it. And I like it on mine, but I love it on this one. I love like the very light dusting, uh, you know, the media that you've used to blast it is so fine and it just gives it that beautiful, touchable surface uh you just you just want to run your fingers all over it to be honest but it goes so well with the dial color as well because the dial color looks very gray at first glance but there's a little more to it right well that's right and i i really like the fact that uh dial textures and colorings uh shift in the light and I often play t- to that very fact by choosing colors, uh, very typical to the brand, actually, as we said, we make a rod for my back. And that's because so many of my suppliers are not within the watch industry. I don't necessarily adhere to color codes like Raoul or Pantone. Um, quite often, I will send my dial maker a printout, CMYK printout of the color that I want rather than a Pantone reference. Um, and also I will choose the papers. This is very typical to the telemark. We did a white dialed watch. I will choose the paper to be able to articulate the amount of reflectivity I want in that dial, because that's a hard thing to get down on an engineering drawing. You can't say I want it semi gloss or to this, uh, factor of reflectivity. And so 
The easiest way for me to be able to do that is to choose a paper of which I have thousands here, and I'm able to print out the color on the paper that has the right amount of reflectivity. And this is no different for the B5 dial. So the B5 is very pale, beige, uh, but a pinky beige, a warm pinky beige that some lights looks gray and some lights takes on that pink blossom color, the blossom of the Sakura the amazing cherry trees uh, when they blossom in Japan is quite a sight to behold. And it's also party time. People go out and drink under the trees. Uh, there's lots of tourists about. It's a real, real buzz. And I wanted to get that kind of party time feel. Uh, so it's like a dress, like a cocktail watch almost, quite quite typically, I have to be careful what I say now, feminine in styling, but it's certainly delicate. Okay. And this pinky beige dial, though makes the watch hard to sell, is incredibly pretty um, and works so well with the case. The dial I had made some time ago, actually, and there was one watch built into a bronze case as an experiment, and it never quite worked for me. It had to go in this pale middle text case. And then the case back, uh, the bit that you you wanted to really uh, get me to explain um, is special because there are two things that we can't do with case backs. One, we don't do color. So we've always done laser engraving. We use an industrial laser, which oxidizes the steel. So we do get contrast, which a lot of companies don't get. And we can't do orientation because we have screw down case backs. And to match the backs to the case is near impossible because of ever so small dimensional changes uh, to the gaskets and the materials, but also to how much torque uh, is used to do up the case backs. And if the case back, if you try to align it and it's out ever so slightly, that looks way worse than out a long way. So we've never bothered doing alignment. And then I had an idea about how about if I made essentially a badge that went into the case back and the case back was screwed in and then I had a rebate in which the badge could be bonded to. And then when that case back is screwed in, I could then subsequently bond in this, this, this badge. And I thought, okay, this is ideal situation to do this. So I reached out to a number of people and I came across a very old fashioned lapel pin maker in the UK that made lapel pins with glass enamel and sterling silver or gold uh, uh, and various platings and bits and pieces. They've been around since 1880, okay, but they had never done a project like mine. They had never made, made a large pin badge. We're talking about 32 mils in diameter. They had never made it uh, that thin because, of course, I don't have lots of real estate from a thickness point of view, uh, so it needs to be thin. Um, and they'd never done it for something like a three and a half thousand pound watch where the quality control had to be really high. They'd made lapel pins, which you're looking at from a meter away, not studying at 30 centimeters uh, that you would be the case back of the watch. Having looked, and I urge anybody to do this, just Google uh Japan manhole covers, and you'll see what I'm on about here, right? There's a lot of really cool designs. There's one that I always really loved, and it's a really unusual one, and you have to dig pretty deep into Google to find this. And it's of a, an old gnarly tree that's been pruned right back and has cherry blossoms going across it, and then lots of vertical shoots with little buds on. And it sits on a kind of rocky outcrop, and I thought this was the coolest thing. 
and also the best idea for a foray into proper glass enameling because the flowers are translucent and so we texture the metal underneath the enamel and that gives a certain vibe coming through the metal and the rest i left pretty plain i use the colors of the dial as best i can because you can't match uh, enamel accurately colors of the dial by sending them large swatches again so that they could color match and we pulled it off we nailed it it's a sterling silver 32 millimeter badge that gets bonded into the stainless steel drain cover assembly on the back and for the first time we can orientate it so it sits the right way up it has a five at the top for b2b5 batch five and Schofield watch co b5 written underneath I've even added some moss balls. Moss balls are really cool and people grow them in Japan. And uh, I've added them to the ground area, played around with the drain cover to make it my own. And it was so beautiful that I decided that I would make a lapel pin. So now we've got a 16 mil copy, essentially simplified version of the case back. So you can wear the bit that's hidden when you wear your watch forward facing and you can show off in you've got oh my god and rob what's so cool about this is i now do that with all watches oh no so the landmark of uh late last year um uh now sold out that landmark had its own badge i have a generic badge for older watches i haven't gone back and made a, a fresh badge for everything but every watch we do in the box now comes with a little lapel pin so you can collect those oh you're killing me uh representing all of your watches oh no oh god I was afraid you were going to say that. I was hoping it was just a one-off kind of thing or a two-off, as it were, with a landmark as well. But no, no, you're now making me want to collect pin badges again. (sighs) Okay, look, that is a stunning story. Wonderful that you've taken this from the beginning up until some of the most recent watches you've released with the B5 and the landmark. I cannot wait to hear what's coming next, but we'll have to get you back on the line again to talk about that. And giving us that little tease with the pin, with the beautiful enamel pin, into the effort you put into everything around the watchers in the Schofield Watch Company is a perfect segue to our next episode, which hopefully will not be very long in the making. So, Giles, thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate the time and the stories and sharing with us all of that information from behind the curtain. If you, our listeners, have any questions for Giles, please contact us either at rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show or find us both on Instagram at robnuds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or Alon Ben Joseph, that's at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. And if you want to check out Giles's wares, you can find those at schofieldwatchcompany.com. Giles, it was a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Absolutely, Rob. Anytime. <laughs>